Psalm 73 in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat, and they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore His people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure, and washed my hands in innocence, for I've been stricken all day long, and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight, until I came into the sanctuary of God. Father, we have come this morning into your sanctuary to be near to you and to hear your voice speaking and to know who you are. When we come into your sanctuary as a body of believers who do trust you, Lord, but who also look around at this world and we get confused and we get rattled and we get shaken and we get tired. Father, sometimes faith just wears me out. Sometimes I wonder if it wouldn't just be easier to to slide into the world and do the things everybody does. Sometimes, Father, until we come into the sanctuary. Would you bless our time this morning, Lord, to your purposes and to your will. And Holy Spirit, speak us your words in Jesus' name. Amen. Actor and comedian Dennis Leary describes himself as a lapsed Catholic. And he once said the following, he said, Most people think life stinks and then you die. Not me. I beg to differ. I think life stinks. And then you get cancer. And then your dog dies, your wife leaves you, the cancer goes into remission, you get a new dog, you get remarried, and you owe $10 million in medical bills, but you work hard for 35 years and you pay it back. And then one day you have a massive stroke. And your whole right side is paralyzed. And you have to limp along the streets and speak out of the left side of your mouth and drool, but you go into rehabilitation and regain the power to walk and the power to talk. And then one day you step off a curb at 67th Street and bang, you get hit by a city bus and then you die. Now I have a question for those of you who claim to walk with Jesus. Those who would say, I'm in a relationship with God, I do not have a lapsed faith. I assert that I know who God is and and this this is my life. Let me ask you this question. Does it make any difference? I mean a tangible, workable, practical, daily difference in the life that you live moment by moment during the day. It should. I mean, I would think that it would. I I would hope that it would. But but does it really? Walking by faith and not by sight is not easy. It's not a simple thing. It sounds great, but honestly, sometimes you get blindsided. 
The city bus comes barreling down 67th Street and the Christian gets slammed with hard realities. Sometimes we think walking by faith and not by sight means I'm always, I'm always looking up and so I'm somewhat unaware of the world around me until, bang, life hits. Faith doesn't always mean financial improvement. Sometimes faith means it's going to get tighter. Prayer doesn't always produce immediate healing. Really? Yeah. And when we look to the church community, sometimes it seems so divided and disparate, we wonder if everything's just going dark around us. I'm not trying to bring you down. In fact, I think you all know this to be true. In Christ or out of Christ, life can be hard. Whether you're a believer in Jesus and you commit, you show up at church every time the doors are open, life can still be a struggle. It can still be difficult. But here's the thing. There is an absolute truth in Christ Jesus, which if we can grasp it, if we can hold on to this, it makes all the difference in the world when faith doesn't seem to produce the things that we think it should produce. And it's the opening of this psalm. Surely God is good. Surely God is good. Now, I present that to you this morning as a fact. Before we look at all the the messes of life in our lives and the things going on in the world and the difficulties and the darkness, God is good. This is one of the standard declarations of the Bible. God is good. And that's how the psalm begins. Surely God is good. So I don't know if you find yourself saying that from time to time when things are bad. (laughs) I know God is good. This is bad. But God is good. But this is bad. But God is good. It's a truth. It's a reality. It is an absolute. Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. Moses wanted to see the awesomeness of God and the wonder and the splendor of God. Exodus 33.18 Show me your glory. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. I want to see your glory. And God says, all right, I will make my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. God is good. I'm going to put my goodness before you, Moses. And in Exodus 34, it tells us the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, literally for thousands of generations, by the way, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Visiting, he says, to see if each successive generation is following in the sins of their fathers or is willing to repent and return to him. God comes back time after time after time to see where are you at? Are you willing to turn to me? Or are you going to do the same filthy things your fathers did? That's what it means, visiting the sin of the fathers on the children to the continuing generations. God is good. He's full of mercy and justice and grace and righteousness. 
And Psalm 84, verse 11 tells us, The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. And it says this, listen, No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing. Because God is good. You ever feel like God is withholding from you? I'm not saying, oh, of course, you know, I'm not looking for the religious answer. I'm looking for the real answer. Do you ever feel like God is withholding good from you? Lord, I'm praying, I'm trying, but it's not all so good. And, and we're asking for this, but we're not. What's going on? If you ever feel that way, listen, my only answer I can give you is that it's not good yet. If you feel like God is withholding good from you, it's because it is not good yet. It's not His timing to do what sometimes we think He needs to do. It's like the last hour before dinner time in my house. As little feet cannot stay out of the kitchen. And why can't we eat now? Can we eat now? We're hungry now. It's not good yet. It's not good. It's got to cook. There are times with David with, with his little baby bottle when it gets stuck in the microwave, it's, it's like 10 seconds to warm the milk in there. You know, 10 seconds. And he stands there crying. <laughs> and it's, it's not good yet. Ten, nine, eight, seven. <laughs> you give it to him. <laughs> and then he's good, you know. It's not good yet. Okay, Pastor Rick, so, so it's a timing thing. I, I understand that. But if God is good, why is there so much bad? I mean, on top of everything else, why is there so much bad in the world? Why does it seem like He withholds goodness in, in this world around us? And you know what? That is the same song, 6,000th verse. This has been said over and over and over and over since the very beginning. Satan has been whispering this disheartening question since the garden days. If God is so good, why does He deny good to you? Look around you. There's all this goodness, so-called. Why isn't He giving it to you? That's what Satan said to Eve in the garden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 says, "...the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field." which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. And the serpent said, You won't die. What is Satan doing here? He's telling Eve, God's denying you some of this fruit. I see all these other trees, but... Why, why would God do that to you? Why would He give you all this, but He won't give you this? Is He just taunting you? He's playing with you? You see this tree, it's beautiful, the fruit looks great. Why would He do this to you? He's denying you good. He's denying you good. And we've been taking the bait ever since. Just like Eve, we start to look at the one thing. Thousands upon thousands of blessings and good things in our lives. God surrounds us with and gives to us, and we look at the one tree. And we focus on the one tree and suddenly we can't see the forest (laughs) or the tree. All the good. And there's one area and we're buying in. Look at the psalmist. Asaph. Asaph is writing this in several of the following psalms. Asaph is David's worship leader. This is the praise guy. This is the guy that, as, as worship was going up in the sanctuary and around the tabernacle, this is the guy that everyone would look at and go, he is so spiritual. 
I mean, look at the way he sings those songs. Look at, look at the, the look in his eyes. Oh, he teared up that time. Oh, Asaph, he's a worshipful guy. And then you read what Asaph is thinking. And Asaph was a man with a lot of angst, at least in this particular psalm. He, he's a poet, and Asaph, we're told scripturally, is a prophet. But he begins this psalm with a common cry of, of history that certainly God is good, but I'm not feeling it. I can make mental assent to the fact, to the truth, to that absolute that God is good. Surely God is good. But when my heart is aching, that goodness just seems to be fleeting. I know it to be true, but I'm not feeling it. Asaph. We're going to spend some time with him. In fact, he is the one who leads off this whole new section of the Psalms. We began on Wednesday night. We are in a new place now. If you thought, by the way, book two of the Psalms, the deliverance section was great, you ain't seen nothing yet. It gets better. We're now into book three, which parallels the third book of the Bible, Leviticus. You could call this the Levitical Psalms. Just as Leviticus describes the holiness of the sanctuary and the sacrifices that make the sanctuary holy, so Psalms 73 through 89 are sanctuary psalms. We move from the place of talking about deliverance now to entering the sanctuary. To entering the place where God is. That's what these psalms are about. The presence of holiness and the worship of God. And being in that place where God Himself declares that He will be, where God wants to meet with His people, the sanctuary psalms. Now, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But Asaph, back to him, he he begins this whole thing with a very familiar cry that you may have uttered yourself. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. And you might read that and say, see, I knew there was a catch. Surely God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. See, so it's not for all of us. He's good to Israel. Fine. Whatever. And He's good to those who are pure of heart. Whatever. (laughs) And in March, the twin ugly sisters of envy and guilt. He's good to Israel. I'm not Israel. He's good to the pure in heart. Not pure in heart either. Envy, guilt. And so we find ourselves barred from, from accepting sometimes God's goodness because we say, oh, no, it's, it's, it's got to be for somebody else. I'm not Israel and I'm not pure. Well, let's think about what God has done with Israel. I mean, there are Jewish people the world over who would say, I wish God had chosen somebody else. I mean, if they had it easy. Being the chosen people of God does not make for an easy life, my friends. Doesn't guarantee it's all going to be smooth sailing. Look at Israel. <clears throat> Listen, I've said this before. The reason that God is good to Israel is not because Israel is good. It's because God is good. God is good to Israel. Because God is good, period. And it has nothing to do with their reaction, their response, their behavior, their attitudes. God chose them because He chose them. God is good to them because God is good. And the same applies to you. Please get this. God is not good to you because you're such a good person. Because you have really held it all together. Because you have had a righteous week. God's not good to you because of what you do. He's good to you because He's good. Period. Which takes a little of the pressure off. 
Paul talks about this in the first chapter of Ephesians, and it's an amazing book, but amazing opening chapter, because in the first 12 verses, he is not talking to the church. I know it's in the New Testament, and I know Paul is addressing Gentiles eventually, but not in the first 12 verses of Ephesians. He gives all these promises, covenants, how wonderful, how good, how, how much of a blesser God is. And then he gets down to verse 13 and he says, In Him you also. And now he's talking to Gentiles. All this good, all these promises to Israel. And then you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Paul, you're using the... It's it's Pauline theology, man. What does that mean? It's actually very simple. It means as you trust in Jesus, He offers you both an inheritance and a redemption. You believe Him, and He gives you an inheritance. And a redemption, which, by the way, not, in, not because of what you've done, but because of what He's done, it makes you like Israel, in that you have an inheritance, and like the pure in heart, because you have redemption. So, right at the beginning of the psalm, we can jump in with Asaph, and we can say, surely God is, Israel, is good to Israel, and to those who are pure in heart, and we can recognize, because God is good, it's talking about us. He's good to the redeemed. He's good to those who have an inheritance. He's good because God is good. But Asaph is he's not being theological here. He's not doling out doctrine for us to break down and understand in a, in a biblical, studious sense. Asaph is just busting out of his personal heart. He's saying what oftentimes people say. I look around me and I see good people. And yeah, Christian people who are God's taking care of them. And and I see other people over here and God takes care of them. But not me. And you might relate to that. You might say God is good to my brothers and sisters and those who are in a better place than I am spiritually. He's good to those people. But as for me, I'm struggling here. You ever sat in your church and felt that way on a Sunday morning? looking around and people are worshiping and and you're just going, I can hardly even get here. I I can hardly even get my my head and my heart into what's going on around me. I am having such a hard time right now. They're fine. That's good to them. I'm having a hard time. You know, Asaph is a worship leader and I, I sometimes, I can relate to this. You know, you're up there and you have to lead in worship but your heart's not there. Because... You're questioning things yourself, or you're struggling yourself, or you're hurting yourself. And Asa's in that place. He's in the place of struggle and angst. As for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body or their belly, literally there, is, is fat. What's he saying? They're presently well fed, and... They, they think they're going to be even better off dead. Presently well fed, better off dead. He's saying these people around me are so content and well off now, and barring the occasional funeral, which rattles them a bit, they walk around in ignorant bliss. It's all cool. That's the world around me. They don't even know. And they're happy and they're just hanging in and doing their thing and well fed and don't worry about death. But I come in here and Pastor Rick talks about judgment and hell the last two weeks. 
And frankly, I don't want to think about that. But thanks a lot, Rick. Now I have to. Now suddenly hell is a reality. And judgment is a reality. And I've got these things in my head, but I'm looking around and they're all happy. And ignorance seems to be bliss. And sometimes I just want to be ignorant. I don't want to think about this stuff. And the death of the ignorant loved ones worries me. And I start to carry around this stuff. And they don't have to carry it, you know. They just get to do whatever. I come to church, but secretly I start to question whether it really makes life any better or not. Verse 5. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. I think if it was a modern translation, it would say pride is their bling. (laughs) You know? They wear it. It's like their shiny stuff. Check it out! Look at what I got! Come visit my crib. You know? I just pimped out my ride. You gotta see that too. (laughs) Have you noticed in celebrity how, how much time is spent showing the world their glory and greatness and accomplishment? This is where I live, yeah. Good stuff. See that? Where I live. It's my necklace. I got a chiropractor to help me just because of this necklace. You know, it's this whole attitude of I've got all this stuff. And, and, and so pride is worn by the world today. The garment of violence covers them. Gang, the word violence there is cruelty. The garment of cruelty covers them. Well, how does that work with those prideful... Have you ever seen uh, or heard about the show Punked? It's cruel. It's just cruel. It's like the modern day version of what was the, what was the old show, uh, Candy Camera. But now it, it's cruel. And, and that's, that's all part of this whole thing. It's, something's not right here. Their eye bulges from fatness. What does that mean? It means they're so full of themselves, they're literally bursting. <laughs> Their imaginations or the imaginations of their heart run riot, overflow. You know, I I think so much more of myself than, than I really have a right to. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. Wow. There's so every word of this psalm we could go into. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. Like saying, Israel's the oppressing nation of the world. Israel? Tiny little pinprick of a nation, Israel? Yeah, they're the oppressor. Okay, all right. They speak from on high. In other words, they just think that all that they're saying and doing is is just... And I watch this stuff on the news and on TV and I just go, this is frustrating for me. I don't know if I like this. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. You ever just get sick of parading tongues? Well, what a picture is that? (laughs) Foul-mouthed, dirty-joking, lying tongues spouting deceit. And it's all around us. Let me just say something, especially to to you younger guys. Weak minds use bad words. I mean, that, that, that's just the way it is. If, if you can't come up with creative ways to articulate how you feel and what you want to say, <laughs> cuss. And when I hear 
When I hear foul language, the first thing I think of is how stupid it looks. How dumb it, it sounds coming off of the lips of, uh, of those of us using those words. It's just, really? Yeah. You can't, can't you? There's got to be a better way. This is what I've told my kids. Be creative in your frustration. Be creative in your anger. You know? Don't just go to the cuss word. Use something interesting. Well, like Asaph does all the way through here. Dad, I mean, I'd love it if, if Hayden walked home and said, Dad, yeah, this, this person was just so full of pride, their eye was bulging. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> he was wearing pride like a necklace. You know? But they go to these, these foul words. Listen, Proverbs 15.2 says, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of the fool spouts folly. It's foolish. It's stupid. Cussing makes a person look stupid. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3 says, Immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Well, that's a little difficult, Paul. You haven't lived in America in the 2000s. And the reality is, gang, all that stuff comes from the flesh. The coarse joking and... And the filthiness and, and all of that and, and the language, it comes from the flesh. It, it comes off and out. You know? Instead of coming from the Spirit, which is, which is pure and good and right. But more than coarse jokes or cussing, the danger of the tongue lies in its ability to kill. You see, these parading tongues are not innocuous. They are killers in our world. Uh, Jim talked about this a few weeks ago, James 3, verse 6. The tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. That's Jesus' brother saying these words. And gang, that is serious business. What he's talking about with the tongue For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. But let's be honest. Aren't there times where you just want to unleash the tongue? You just want to let it fly. You're so sick and tired of what you see going around you or or maybe you've been attacked by someone or something or some situation and so you just want to unleash the full poisonous power of the tongue and let it fly. Man, with with worldly tongues wagging and parading all around, it, it is hard not to follow suit. As Rich Mullins once sang, it's hard to be like Jesus. Sometimes... It's hard to be a Christian, to accept the restraint of the Spirit. The restraint of of Scripture. I know God is good, Asaph says, but this is all so confusing. Well, it gets worse, verse 10. Therefore His people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. What does that mean? Asaph is recognizing a serious situation here. He's saying, you know what? Evil is so bad around us that God's people, His people, return to this place. The phrase return to this place is literally turn aside here. God's people turn aside here. Where? The parade of the tongues. 
the evil that's going all around us. Rather than being with the Lord in the sanctuary, God's people are saying, I'm going to stop here for a while. I'm going to pause in this place of the world to the evil parades. His people return to this place. And you might say, but the second half is good, right? Waters of abundance are drunk by them. No, it's not good. The Hebrew word for drunk is masa. And masa means to wring out or to drain out. Read that way, and the King James Version translates this really well. His people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out of them. How long does it take when you come out of Bible study or worship? How long does it take to start to feel wrung out? I mean, I've had people say to me, I can barely make it to Wednesday night. (laughs) Barely get there. Because I feel so wrung out. It just doesn't take any time at all. And gang, the more we attend the parades of wickedness in the world, the faster our spirits will be wrung out. The faster we will be dried up and, and, and thirsting and wanting more and not having it there when we need it. The more we attend the world and its ways. Verse 11. They say, how does God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Now, they could be the wicked, but it could also be the church that's turned aside and is getting wrung out. Does God know what I'm doing here? I mean, I'm not doing this in the barn. (laughs) You know, I'm in another place. Maybe He's not paying attention right now. And I'll get away with this here. And then I'll show up Sunday and and we'll, we'll be good. Is there knowledge with the Most High? Verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. What's he saying? Is it worth it? Or is it just all vanity? Is it worth it to even try to be good or righteous or holy? I mean, I do all this and it doesn't seem to be making any difference in my life whatsoever. But then his thoughts kind of return to him and he says, if I had said I will speak thus, in other words, like the world, Behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Good old Asaph is saying, I I can't join those parades. I can't give in to sin without knowingly affecting and betraying those people I serve here in Israel. I'm a worship leader, man, Asaph would say. And if I join in the ways of the world, I betray God's people. So that's even more of a struggle. Now it's not even just about me, it's about everyone else who I might affect if I start going off and doing worldly stuff, man, I can relate to that. If ever there was a pastor's statement of restraint, Les, that's it right there. For a pastor who sits up here and tries to proclaim the truth of God every Sunday, if I go out and I do things that are contrary to what I'm challenging or what the Word is challenging all of us to do, I betray you. And not just me as a pastor. Listen. When you and I choose to hang out with the parades of evil, we betray our brothers and sisters in Christ. We make it harder for them to follow Jesus. We cause stumbling. What did Asa said? My feet were close to stumbling. I was about ready to stumble. And all these things he's, he's pouring out in this awesome psalm. I'm just being brutally honest. Sometimes my firewall against sin is you. It is. There are times where I want to make a sinful choice that I know is sinful and no one's watching and I think I can get away with it and what comes to mind is you. 
And I thank God for you because you make it a lot harder for me to enter into sinful places. So thank you, Lord, for the bridge. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. But again, it's not just pastoral. Every one of us in here this morning have our own sphere of influence that is either supported by or thwarted by our example. Parents with your, your children. Brothers and sisters with, with your friends, with family, with those around you. Everybody is watching. And if you once proclaim Jesus, they're watching to see what that means. But again, this is personal. Asaph is saying, I, I'm struggling with what that means. I'm struggling with how to live my life. And he says, and I relate, I sit and I agonize over the way of the world and over the wandering of God's people. It breaks my heart. And Les will tell you this too, one of the downsides of ministry is being as aware as we are of what's going on in the church today. And it it, it is heartbreaking to see some of it. Some of it is glorious and wonderful and a praise to God and fantastic. But there are other aspects of looking at the church today that's just heartbreaking. And they go right back to that place of wishing I had a little more ignorance. Because in that ignorance I could at least have some bliss. And this is the place that Asaph is coming from. Asaph's angst. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. That word troublesome is literally painful. As I thought about all these things, where I'm at with the Lord, where the world's at, where, where the people of God are at, it, just, it, it was just painful. Until... Until. It's the hinge word of the entire psalm. And it's the hinge verse as well. It is the answer to the angst. Listen. It is the answer to all the problems until I came into the sanctuary of God. The sanctuary is key. The sanctuary is the place to be. Outside of the sanctuary... I'm frustrated, confused, I struggle, I'm tempted, I stumble, I fall. Outside of the sanctuary. And Asa says, I'm struggling with all this until I came into the sanctuary of God. So Asa was in that slump. You know, if, if God is good, but the world is bad, and even believers are joining the rebellion, I don't know how to deal with this Lord. And Asaph, the worship leader, is troubled and discouraged until, until I came into the sanctuary. You ever, you ever walk in a little bit late on a Sunday morning, and worship's already going, and the moment you walk in the door, you just go... And, and for me and the worship team, when we walk in here and we're you know, trying to wake up and pull out the instruments and, okay, we're going to do this. Ready? First note. Start to sing. Pause to pray. Until I came into the sanctuary. Man, it was ugly, it was bad, it was frustrating, it was a struggle. Until. The sanctuary in Asaph's day was David's tabernacle. And we've talked about this recently, the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem and into the tabernacle and what a glorious day that was and how there was now a place in Jerusalem where the people could come and they knew the presence of God was there. Oh, the sanctuary. And then Solomon's temple would be built next. That beautiful, amazing structure, grand and glorious. 
The sanctuary. But you need to understand the sanctuary indicated something far greater than simply a structure to Asaph. Read on in verse 17. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. (coughs) When God checks out what's going on in this world that's causing me all this angst, when He sees all this, He will despise their form, what they have become, their behavior, their actions, their attitudes, their examples. He will hate that. Asaph is waking up. Asaph is recognized. He's coming to the sanctuary and the reality of God's presence floods over him and he says, oh, God would hate this stuff. The, the very things that I've been struggling with, God hates it. A couple of things to note about the sanctuary, gang. First of all, the sanctuary reveals the sudden ruin of evil. The sudden ruin of evil. Because here in the sanctuary, in the presence of holiness Himself, we see the righteous judge. And we rejoice. And we've been talking about this. The bright and stunning reality of God, not only as loving, kind, and gracious Father, but of God as the judge. And His justice reveals the sudden ruin of evil. Listen to this, Psalm 58. Again, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, and men will say, surely there's a a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. And you cannot worship God in fear and reverence without recognizing His awesome power and His certain faithfulness to deal with absolute justice. If you have been wronged, He will deal with it. If things have been said of you that are unkind and unfair, He will deal with it. If there's sin and, and horror in the world, and you just get sick to the point you've got to turn off the news because you just don't want to hear it anymore, He will deal with it. He is God. And as we worship Him, we say, Father, You are right. At least You know how to make right out of all this mess of the world. The sudden ruin of evil. In the book of Revelation chapter 18, I've got to show this to you quickly. Chapter 18 talks about the fall of Babylon. The fall of Babylon. Capital city of world rebellion in the tribulation. It is that place that, that Antichrist will set up his kingdom. Some have said, well, could Babylon be America? Boy, it sure looks like it by the description of the Scriptures. But I personally think, no, the Bible's literal. It's going to be Babylon. And that will be the place of of His wickedness and where it's all set up there. But, But listen to the fall. Listen to the sudden ruin of evil here as described. After these things, Revelation 18.1, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with His glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the... (laughs) That's where all the birds that bother me in the barn, that's where they're going to (laughs) go. 
For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Pornography, by the way, is the number one uh, money-making tool in the world today. And I heard another voice come out from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Down in verse 8 it says, For this reason in one day her plagues will come, pestilence, mourning, famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord who judges her is strong. In one day, the sudden ruin of evil, like the day of Sodom and Gomorrah, Boom! It will just happen in a moment. Babylon destroyed. Wickedness taken out. He cannot worship God in fear and reverence without recognizing the justice of God. And you see that in the sanctuary. You become aware of that. Isaiah 29 verse 5 says, The multitude of your enemies will become like fine dust, and the multitude of the ruthless ones like the chaff which blows away, and it will happen instantly, suddenly, as we just read. For the ruthless will come to an end, and the scorner will be finished. Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off. And so we read in Revelation 18 that sudden ruin of evil. But I share that passage with you for another reason. And that's to hear what is being spoken by the angel in verse 4. Come out of her, my people. Come out of her. So that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Come out of her. Remember what Asa said in verse 10 of the psalm. His people have turned aside to this place and waters of abundance are drained out of them, are wrung out of them. And so the Word of God, the Spirit would declare to you and to me this morning, come out of the world and into the sanctuary. Don't live in that place. Live in the sanctuary. Camp out there. Because the sanctuary reveals the sudden ruin of evil. An end is decreed. Judgment will fall. You come out of there. Come out, but don't stress out. Don't stress about all the evil and the wicked going on in the world. Folks, we've got we to let that stuff go. As we said a few weeks back, when O'Reilly riles you up. You know, when Beck makes your blood boil. When Oberman makes you feel older man. Don't fret. Don't fret. Don't stress. Don't worry. Come out of the world and come into the sanctuary. It reveals the sudden ruin of evil, but secondly, and I like this, the sanctuary reveals the senseless ridiculousness of envy. Look at verse 21. Asa says, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. And he is coming to his senses. Note what he says. I was pierced within. The word there, <laughs> within, is kiliah. In the Hebrew, and it means kidneys. I was pierced in my kidneys, Lord. What what was I even envious of compared to you, Lord? And here's the difference. You come into the sanctuary, and all the things that we thought were important, or we thought were impressive, or we thought we wanted in the world, suddenly pale by comparison to the presence of God. And Asa said, 
Lord, it was like kidney stones. I was pierced in my kidneys. You know, I, I thought about this this week. Envy and bitterness are like kidney stones. I mean, they really are. Those jagged little concretions that painfully block the waste in your body that needs to get out. Envy and bitterness do the same thing. They hold the waste in. They hold the pain in. Your body, your spirit, wants to get that stuff out, but envy won't let it go. Bitterness clings to it. Proverbs 23.17 says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord. Always. But I don't envy sinners, Pastor. I mean, really. Come on. I don't envy sinners. Really? What determines the style of clothing that you wear? I'm going to look like a fool here, but I'll share this with you. I was flipping through a recent issue of Wood and Steel magazine, the Taylor Guitar magazine, drooling a bit. And there was an article about Dave Matthews. And they have this new Dave Matthews signature guitar. And he's playing it. And I'm, and I'm reading the article, I looked at the picture, and I went, those are really cool shoes. He had these leather, old, leather, you know, boot-like shoes. And your idiot pastor started searching online for a pair of shoes like that. Why? Why? Dave has a pair. Kind of cool, and if and if I had a pair of shoes like Dave Matthews has a pair of shoes, and then I play my Taylor guitar like Dave Matthews plays his Taylor guitar, maybe I'll be like Dave Matthews. <laughs> what? <laughs> that is so stupid. And I didn't buy him. But just looking around at the celebrity version of things and saying, "Oh, I want to look like that," or "I'd like to have that too," and it's it's just, it's envy and it's stupid. Or the political version. I wish I had a little more power like that. It corrupts. Or the immorality that we see around us that says, hey, it's your right to live however you want to live. And we become frustrated by it all. And bitterness enters and envy like kidney stones. It starts to be painful until you come into the sanctuary. And we come into the sanctuary and it reveals the sudden ruin of evil and the senseless ridiculousness of envying anything other than Jesus Christ. And finally, the sanctuary reveals the secure refuge of eternity. This is great. Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And afterward, receive me to glory. In two verses, Asa shows us literally four securities in the sanctuary. Four securities. God's presence. Nevertheless, I am with you continually. God's presence is here. And secondly, you've taken hold of my right hand. God's big palm takes hold. And thirdly, your counsel will guide me. God's plans become the focus of my life. And fourthly, oh, he says, afterward you will receive me to glory. God's promise is in the sanctuary. 
I come into the sanctuary and I sense His presence, His plans, His promise, His palms. I think I like that one the most, the hand of God in the sanctuary. It reminded me when we walk down the path from our, our home to the barn each week for second service, I often will go home and, and get the kids and come walking down with Cheryl. And we discovered we've got to hold on to Naomi and David's hands coming down that path. Because the path can be a little slippery. Those are rocks on the path. And, and, and if I'm not holding on to Naomi's hand, her feet go right out from under her. She needs a bigger hand holding her. Just like Asaph was saying, I was about to slip. My feet were close to stumbling, he starts out at the beginning of this psalm. I was slipping, I almost stumbled. I've got you, says the Lord. His hands are big. I've got you. And in the sanctuary, I learned there that it's not that I'm holding God's hand at all. It's that He's holding mine. And when my hand goes limp, and when my hand is not holding or grasping or clinging to the Father, when I'm looking at other things, you know, I'm not really hanging on, He's got me. He has not let go. I think of Peter when he walked on the water. Which, by the way, is a stunning thought. Peter walked on the water. Jesus walked on the water. I, I can accept that. God in the flesh, okay, He can walk on water. Peter did. Peter stepped out of the boat and walked. As long as his eyes were on Jesus, you know, no problem. Until he started looking at the storm and the waves and the wind and it freaked him out and down he went. And what happened? You remember? Jesus grabbed him. I love the way Matthew writes this. Matthew 14, 31. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. (laughs) Now, if I had been Jesus in that moment, I would have gone, See? No, no, you figure it out, man. You give dog paddle your way back. I'll meet you at the boat. Immediately, Jesus grabs him and took hold of him. And then Jesus said, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when I realize Jesus has got me in the palm of his hand, it is a lot easier to keep my eyes on him and to have faith. Jesus holding Peter there. And I wonder how often Peter would recall the firm grasp of Jesus when life got stormy. He's got me. John would write in John 10.28, remembering Jesus saying these words, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. His palm... While I'm with Jesus continually in His presence, He's got my right hand now by His palm. His plans will guide me and He will receive me to glory. And that secure refuge, understand that, that secure refuge is eternal. And so all the frustration and confusion and consternation of this psalm, suddenly it melts away. Where? In the sanctuary. That's where Asaph gets it, where it all comes flooding in until I came into the sanctuary and then truth began to be revealed. And then your spirit I recognized as being ever-present with me. Then everything changed. Where in the sanctuary, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Gang, we need to be in the sanctuary. This is the place. 
in the sanctuary where it all melts away and we see God for who He is and we feel safe and secure and saved in the sanctuary. Back in verse 16, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. How many times have you felt the angst of Asaph? But you come into this place and it all melts away. You're stressed out and you're struggling. I, I want how many times have I been worn out at week's end and I come into this barn, this plywood sanctuary, and somewhere in the prayers and the worship, the confusion is overcome with trust and joy and strength. And I say, yes, Lord, this is where I want to be, in your sanctuary. That was the point of the tabernacle. That's why God said, I want you to build a tent, Moses. Put the ark in there. Put these pieces of furniture in there as well. The altar and the altar of incense and you know, all the stuff in the tabernacle. Put that there. And Moses, I want it smack dab in the middle of my people. That was on purpose. God could have said, no, my sanctuary is going to be up in the hills about uh, four football fields away from the people because they kind of smell. You know, they got the stinky feet from the walking thing. They got the sinful thoughts and I just can't bear to be among them. No, God said, I want to be right there. I want to be in the midst of everything going on. Exodus 33.10, when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. And I've thought from time to time, how cool would it be if we all had a little mini barn in our front yard? And we can open our front door and go, oh, God, Lord, and just start worshiping, you know. And thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. And I like this verse even better. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, which means either he was a Catholic or didn't have parents. Sorry. His servant Joshua, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Where did the strength of Joshua come from to conquer and to lead all the people after someone like Moses? How did Joshua step into those shoes? Because he didn't depart from the tent. As far as Joshua was concerned, even Moses went back to his place in the camp. Joshua said, no, I'll, I'll be right here. I want to be as close to God as I can be. I will be right here in the sanctuary. We, like Joshua, like Asaph, desperately need the sanctuary. Rick, is this whole thing a commercial about going to church? No. And Bible students, you heard this on Wednesday. Here's the bottom line. The sanctuary is not a place. We've talked about the fact that ultimately, you know, Lord willing, we're going to build another building over there on Troxel. Ultimately, eventually, we're going to move out of this barn. And there's kind of a sadness about that. And people go, oh. And I've had people say, could we put plywood around and, and posts and stuff to make it look barnish? <laughs> Let me tell you, what you experience in here is not a barn. It's a sanctuary. And the sanctuary is not grounded on this foundation, but on the foundation of Jesus Christ. The sanctuary is not a place. The sanctuary is a person. And when I talk about entering into the sanctuary, I'm not talking about showing up here at 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning. 
talking about entering into the sanctuary who is Jesus Himself. Jesus Christ, our sanctuary. Did you see what Asaph said? He said, I am continually with you. Verse 23. Which means when He's walking home from worship, the Lord is with me. When He leaves the tent, the tabernacle, God is with The sanctuary comes with me. Wherever I am, I'm continually with you. He says in verse 25, Whom am I, have I in heaven besides you? And I desire nothing on earth compared to you. The sanctuary moving with Him. Look at verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. Not those who are far from the barn or far from the tabernacle, or far from the church building, has nothing to do with location, gang. Those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you, not to attending their church. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. I love this. Asaph begins the psalm saying, As for me, my feet were close to stumbling. Now he says, As for me, the nearness of God is my good. That's what I needed. That's what I was forgetting. You see the difference? The difference between being at the as for me I'm about to fall or the as for me the nearness of God is my good? God is good, but it was all bad until I came into the sanctuary where the nearness of God is my good until for a moment I stopped, I paused, I recognized the presence of God and His goodness. And when I'm in that place spiritually, when I'm in the sanctuary who is Jesus Christ, the nearness of God is my good and everything else falls away. Our sanctuary gang is our Savior. Our sanctuary is Jesus. Wherever He is, that's where I want to be. That's why I show up here, by the way. I show up here because I have a sense He's going to be here. That's why I bow and I pray, because I know He'll meet me there. It's why I worship. Some have asked, why do we worship so much? Hey, gang, because the Bible tells me He inhabits the praises of His people. We worship because we know God is here. And it allows us to draw even nearer to Him. How do we navigate all the confusion of the world and the angst of our hearts? God is good. That's a fact. Therefore, the nearness of God is my good. We've entered the sanctuary psalms. Psalms that declare the presence of God. Our sanctuary. His holiness, His sacrifice as revealed in Jesus Christ who is our sanctuary. And gang, He, the sanctuary who is Jesus, will bring about the sudden ruin of evil. And He, in His presence, I I see the senseless ridiculousness of envying the things of the world. And in Jesus, my sanctuary, I find my secure refuge for all eternity. Because the sanctuary is him. In Revelation 21, verse 22, John describes his vision of the New Jerusalem, our home address for all eternity, and he says, I saw no temple in it at all. We might say, I saw no barn there. There's no barn in New Jerusalem in which to worship. What are we going to do? And John says, 
The Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. Come out of the world and into the sanctuary is what Asaph is telling us. Come out of the world and into the sanctuary. Jesus is my sanctuary. 